Welcome to episode 401 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. And you'll be relieved to know that there is no video of this episode. 400 was fun. I don't know when we'll repeat it. We are lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, uh, our family, not even our pets. Joining me on the News Roundup today, Sultan Meiji, uh, scholar in residence at the Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Sultan, it's great to have you back uh, on the program so that I can talk to you from your sabbatical in government. Yeah, well, it's great to be back, Stuart, and I'm, I'm happy that the lawyers are letting us speak again. <laughs> yeah, we always have to have somebody on who knows what they're talking about on the technology side. And uh, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culver Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. Nate, great to have you. Thank you, Stuart. And Maury Schenk, uh, our London-based lawyer and technologist. Uh, Maury, it's great to talk to you again. Really great to be back. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. There's a lot of different uh, stories. There's no theme to this one, although I'll have to make one up by the time we write the show notes. But I thought one interesting sub-theme that emerged from the stories this week were a lot of talk and worry about maritime cybersecurity. Uh, Nate, where is all this coming from and how serious is it as a sectoral problem? Yeah, I mean, it, look, the Atlantic Council published a report last week and, you know, not surprisingly in the wake of, of COVID, they and others have focused on maritime security, uh, among other things, because of the risks to the American economy. If there is some kind of catastrophic cyber attack that could replicate or even potentially outdo the implications that we've seen happen during COVID and the supply chain disruptions and so on and so forth. So for that reason, it, it makes sense. They have noted among other things that we've seen, upticks in targeting efforts at maritime transportation companies. And so they laid out a, a handful of recommendations over the near, medium, and, and longer. I guess, you know, from my perspective, I had a few reactions. You know, again, because of our recent experience with COVID, it makes sense to focus on maritime security. You know, I would say you also have to be careful about not fighting the last war. You know, I think this is one of many, you know, critical components of our, our economy and our daily life that is is at risk of cyber attack and, and if disrupted could have catastrophic implications for our economy. So I wouldn't necessarily stop here. I think there are a lot of other things we need to focus on. A lot of the recommendations in the Atlantic Council report are sensible, you know, things like having sector-specific cybersecurity frameworks, better intelligence sharing, so on and so forth. A lot of the things you see over and over again, some of them are, are quite general and probably could use some additional meat on the bones. But, you know, like most things, it focuses largely on defense and, and preventing the attacks from occurring in the first place. And I think, you know, as we've seen or learned lessons in the past, for example, from NotPetya and its impact on Maersk and other shipping entities, you know, there's a lot to be said about, about building in resiliency as well. And I would like to see a little bit more focus there, as well as, you know, figuring out ways to establish better deterrence in this space where we, you know, I think one of the risks we have here is, as we do elsewhere, is we haven't really done a good job of drawing red lines and, and saying, you know, articulating to, to bad actors what's going to cross the line and force us to respond. And, 
and which activities are are going to just be ignored. And so I, I think you know establish some some clear lines and and some better deterrence is also needed here. So. The long story short is the the fo- recent focus on maritime security makes makes sense in certain ways, but you know it's a risk if you become too myopically focused if, on that. So, yeah, that sounds about right to me. I have to say, I had a chance because it was flagged uh, in one of the uh, op eds to go back and look at the National Maritime Cybersecurity Plan that were, was released by the Trump administration in December of 2020. And Nate, I know you'll resonate to this. It, it was a joke. Uh, it, <laughs> it's 36 pages long, but when you actually throw out the appendices and the introduction and the blank pages, it's six pages long. It's like it's like somebody it's discovered... Summary. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like they discovered their term paper, oh my God, is due in December 2020, and I only have three things to say. How can I stretch this out? <laughs> so I'm glad the Atlantic Council wrote the maritime security, cybersecurity plan yeah. that, that should have come out in December of 2020. I'm sure they got caught without an opportunity to to do a good job. But frankly, a a plan released by the Trump administration after they'd lost is not going to be worth much anyway. Yeah. Okay. There is a report out about cybersecurity vulnerabilities in Rockwell Automation's industrial control systems that got a 10 out of 10 for impact. Sultan, this is really something to worry about, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, digital Pearl Harbor level stuff. And if you double click on it and you dig into what actually the vulnerability is and how easy it is, I think I could do my use. I think I could do it on my iPhone. So, you know, I I think this is a big deal and it does, you know, pay not only does it pay to target on Rockwell, but I think as always, we're we're playing deep catch up on industrial control systems. These guys are, are way behind the curve. And this, I hope actually, you know, gets people to pay a little more attention about this because the issue is not just getting in. It's the fact they can get in and stay entirely stealth while they're doing it. And then all of and, a sudden, you have all these other downstream activities they can get into. And my impression is that forensic tools on industrial control systems just oh. are awful. I mean, chalk and chalkboard kind of level stuff at this point is really the state of the art. So, yeah, no, this is this is bad. And it's been around for a while. So the cleanup on this one is, is going to take some energy. Okay, well, here's a good news uh, uh, story about uh, decaying technology. Uh, Russia's system for controlling what Russians can see and read on the uh, internet, SORM, S-O-R-M, is sort of decaying and maybe on the point of at least uh, occasional collapse. Maury, uh, I thought this was good news and maybe not completely surprising as Russia tries to build a great firewall like China's, they're discovering they don't have the capabilities to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, SORM has been around for a long time, and in recent years, they've been upgrading it. The, the way the SORM system works is they requ- the Russian government requires all the operators to install certain boxes in their networks that do the surveillance for them. And they've expanded that to a lot of internet surveillance. They've been trying to build a sort of isolated Russian internet. And as you say, it's a complicated enterprise. And so I think it isn't working out as well as they expect, particularly under the stresses of the current situation. 
Yeah, a lot of people who are capable of making this run are asking whether they shouldn't run and go find jobs in the West where they can actually do work as opposed to live in a heavily sanctioned economy. So yeah, we could see gradual decays as they have trouble replacing hardware and trouble replacing talent. I think that's that's all good news. On the other hand, this other story that came out about the same time from the New York Times saying that when Nokia pulled out of Russia, it left behind a vast surveillance system. You know, frankly, the reporters on this, Adam Satariano, Paul Moser, Aaron Krolik, they should be ashamed of themselves. This is a nothing burger dressed up as a story. And the only reason they wrote it is, I suspect, they had spent so much time looking at leaked doxed documents that they had to say something. But what they ended up saying, and Nokia has put out a statement on this, is Nokia has wiretap capabilities that everybody who designed phone systems has to build in. The FBI made it a matter of U.S. law. It's a standard and it's pushed very aggressively by law enforcement in Europe. You have to have a way for law enforcement to plug in and say, I've got a warrant and I want this guy's communications now. That's all they had. All of the other stuff, exactly whether you need a warrant, how you do it, how many you do, what the probable cause is, that's all built into the system that interfaces with what Nokia or Huawei or Ericsson builds. And there's nothing diff that, that contradicts this in the story. They basically just say Nokia knew they were working in Russia and that Russia had this technology that's, the, you know, the SORM technology, and they helped SORM figure out how to connect to their API. I, you know, I don't know what we're supposed to know from that. Well, I, I agree with you completely, Stuart. I mean, I, I'm a Russian speaker. I'm disappointed about what Russia is doing now, but I've been operating there for years, and... There's a Russian company that builds these SORM boxes that are installed. They are US, carriers that operate there, like Nokia's client MTS or Western carriers, are required to install these boxes in order to comply with Russian law. I've helped with that, too. I hope the New York Times doesn't pick that up, and I wouldn't do it right now. But it's just simply Nokia was helping this entity comply with Russian law, and the Russians are running their surveillance system. Uh, Nokia hasn't done anything wrong, and now they've pulled out. Yeah, it, it's a shame. I saw a really good Ukraine movie over the last week called Mr. Jones about a reporter who discovers the Ukraine famine that was engineered by Stalin. And a big part of that story is a New York Times reporter, Walter Durante, who was lying through his teeth for the benefit of the Soviet Union and got a Pulitzer for claiming that there was no uh, famine. Really well done movie. And one of the questions is, should the New York Times give back its uh, uh, Pulitzer? I noted that Paul Moser is also a Pulitzer winner. He really, if this is the level of work he does, he should give it back too. Uh, it, it, it's just a, a shame that the New York Times felt they, they, they ought to, that they had put so much effort into it that they had to publish some kind of story. All right, Sultan, there's an advisory out from the usual suspects, CISA, FBI, DOE, talking about Russian state-sponsored uh, actors who were indicted. What's the lesson from this latest indictment? I mean, to me, there are two interesting things that come out of this. Number one is this is historical, but the way Jen Easterly talks about it, she keeps switching from past tense to present and future tense. So I'm not sure if that's just a, a slip of the tongue or, you know, she's trying to make a point. The second is it is absolutely clear 
that even though this happened over the last decade, the vast majority of impacted organizations are not doing proper network segmentation. They're not, you know, managing privileges and accounts. They're not using multi-factor authentication. And these agencies are having to say, hey guys, you know, you got to kind of get your act together. I mean, the fact that they call out segmentation between industrial control systems and the rest of their network as something that people should be doing and it's 2022, I mean, It's I, you know, I would be the guy smacking some guy on the back of the head if somebody in my organization had issues with this. But that seems to be all this is doing. It's okay. just trying to raise people to awareness that they just haven't kept their houses clean. And I'm quite confident that that problem is present tense as well as past. So, <laughs> so Nate, I, I thought this was really interesting. We've had sanctions for like a six weeks max. And Treasury, I think smartly, is already starting to find the the networks for evading sanctions and sanctioning the companies that are part of those networks. This seems to me a pretty logical way to proceed, although it's a little bit whack-a-mole. Yeah, I think it's going to continue to be whack-a-mole, Stuart. I think this, you know, I think the last time I was on was when they just had launched the the initial sanctions and we were talking about the virtues, much of the media attention in the subsequent weeks has been focused on the limitations of the sanctions regimes and and obviously this is a big one as as um, you know Russian entities and individuals find creative ways to to circumvent these sanctions and continue to do business Treasury's got to go around and investigate these things and identify those and frankly find some ways to you know impose these kinds of secondary sanctions and and ultimately get help from other countries in enforcing these kinds of things and I, I think you know as the war continues on and and pressure mounts to not only stop the conflict, but to address some of the recent atrocities that we've seen um, happening in Ukraine at the hands of Russian forces. I think the the pressure is not just on on Treasury to to shut down these networks, but to impose additional sanctions on Russia and try to exert that kind of power is going to continue. And one of the key questions for the administration and for some of those companies and individuals on the receiving ends of these kinds of things is going to to be what what is it going to take ultimately for the administration to roll these things back? That's something they haven't really answered. Um, they've been a bit cagey, you know, if there is a, a ceasefire agreement or the war ends and Putin withdraws to some degree, will these sanctions be rolled back? Or, you know, is our policy that it's not going to end until Putin's out of power? That's an, an open question. And, and so, um, you know, if, if I were one of these businesses, I'd be pretty careful about landing on one of these lists because you know, never know when it's going to end. And there is real risk here, I think, if you're doing business with shady characters, but are deliberately blind to how shady they are, there's a real risk that you're going to end up as viewed as part of the network and then sanctioned yourself. And that's a very serious problem. So I think this becomes an enforcement mechanism by, it, by itself. Yeah. And responsible companies don't love sanctions compliance. It's a lot of hard work to look behind who you're doing business with and try to figure out who owns those companies and and who owns those companies and so on. And a lot of companies um, spend a lot of time and effort and money um, figuring those things out so they don't land on these kinds of lists. But you're right. If you're not careful, you, you could trip and fall and end up in a pretty painful place. So what do you think is behind 
the Wall Street Journal story that suggested that there's a lot of nervousness about the idea of sanctioning Kaspersky. I mean, Kaspersky is a, everybody loves Eugene Kaspersky. He's a very nice, lovable bear of a man, and he throws good parties. But Kaspersky's never been something that we should have had in the middle of our network. And antivirus gives you enormous insight into what's happening on people's uh, networks. So it, it is a big risk. The government has already said we're not going to uh, pay for people to install it. We're not going to use it ourselves. This is the next step. And, and the indication is that inside Treasury, there's a lot of pushback on, on this. I was kind of surprised that that's where the people who are pursuing sanctions decided that maybe they shouldn't go far uh, that far. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, they've also apparently been telling people around the time of the invasion in the U.S. that they should, in the private sector, that they shouldn't be using Kaspersky software, which isn't surprising either. Um, I'd be surprised if the risk of retaliation is really what's driving this uneasiness about adding Kaspersky to the list. You know, it'd be surprising to me if that kind of move would tip the scales and, and prompt a, a Russian attack. I suspect that it's much more about the adoption of Kaspersky in other parts of the world and not wanting to, you know, in similar to the way they were a little bit reluctant to, to go after Russian oil and gas because of the potential impact on Europe. I think, you know, they're cognizant of the fact that a lot of people do use this software, whether, you know, they think you should trust it or not, and probably a little bit concerned about the implications of, of sanctioning Kaspersky for all of those other people around the world who do use it, because a lot of people do, despite all the warnings. So I, I, I certainly think if, if they're saying we shouldn't sanction Kaspersky because that might trigger an attack using Kaspersky, I think that kind of explains why you should. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'm with you. It, it, it's a very odd outcome. And we'll see. Maybe at some point they will decide to add the sanctions. I noticed that the Germans have, have also said, we don't want to use Kaspersky. So it's not like with the pipeline where the Germans yeah. are the big problem. Yeah. Okay. Sultan, crypto. Elizabeth Warren's got a plan for regulating crypto. The EU parliament's got a plan for regulating crypto. None of this sounds very good for crypto, though. Well, I, gosh, I mean, if we only had like 17 or 18 hours to talk about the lack of plans that most people have about this, you know, hating on crypto is very popular with certain bases and loving on crypto is popular with a, diff a slightly different set of bases, right? The, you know, here in the United States, we have a hundred different regulatory bodies and the ability for any one member of Congress to get any bill all the way through the White House is pretty much zero at this point. So it's hard for me to get so wound up about any crypto bill uh, mm -hmm. coming from that party over the you know coming couple of years. But it does speak to a fundamental misunderstanding of these technologies that, that some of these analog thinkers have, like that Russians could be using any of the major crypto platforms to evade sanctions. I mean, that's basically impossible. You and I could sit down and using open technology could figure this out pretty easily, right? The, the second big challenge is, how does this fit into the legal framework? I mean, there have been already a bunch of commentary saying, hey, this law is very broad or these attempts at laws are incredibly broad, incredibly poorly written and don't really align to, you know, constitutional norms as one example. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, you've got a whole second set of categor categorical issues there. And then the third is what are they actually trying to accomplish? Right. You know, are they trying to say, OK, we want to collect tax on it. OK, great. 
there are mechanisms that allow for that. Okay, great. You want to make sure BSA, AML, and some of the KYC issues that Nate was talking about are implemented correctly and thoughtfully. Okay, that's fantastic. I'm far more concerned about Russian oligarchs using SWIFT and other parts of the legacy banking infrastructure around the world to evade sanctions than I am, you know, them buying a bored ape NFT and you and then, you know, for five dollars <laughs> and then selling it for 37 million or something like that. Yeah, I uh, moving that amount of, of money yeah. in, in, in Bitcoin is just really hard. Any, anything above a couple hundred thousand dollars and it becomes incredibly obvious and incredibly, I mean, it's like blinking lights, right? I mean, 99% of crypto holders have less than a thousand dollars, right? So, you know, the number of wallets that are being, that you would have to pay attention to are incredibly small. And this is a kind of, you know, risk management regulatory function that, you know, two guys on a laptop could do pretty easily. So, you know, th that's another big piece of it. The other, you know, question I always have is like, can we actually solve some of the basic questions and will Congress eventually pass a law that declares whether or not digital assets sit inside of the existing regulatory system and organize it thoughtfully? Or do we recognize that they might be or potentially recognize that they might be a different asset class, in which case the existing regulatory mechanisms don't work? This kind of try to do both sides of it with one poor couple of paragraphs is, I think, going to be an interesting drama that... To, to quote someone who's a better writer than I am, you know, lots of sound and fury, but in the end, meaning nothing. So who's going to win the effort to be the financial system for 2040? Bitcoin or Apple? Oh, Apple is looking really interesting right now. I mean, anytime somebody can put out a press release and it causes Goldman Sachs stock to take a hit, you know, that's something to pay attention to. And so Apple, you know, announcing to the world that they're basically going to start building all of their own financial services infrastructure, you know, at a very broad level. I mean, you see their pushes into small business, which are a structural weakness currently in the banking system. You know, the, the community banks aren't servicing that community very well. You see the growth in buy now, pay later and some of those other mechanisms. I mean, at some point, you know, Apple's going to end up owning the rails. They're going to end up owning the depository platforms. I mean, this is a shot across the bow of the entire banking infrastructure and most of the fintechs out there. Because if Apple decides to go after something, you know, they've spent five years figuring out how to win. It's interesting because I remember the banks were scared to death that Microsoft in 1994 was going right. to take over the financial system. And there was a, all kinds of antibodies raised. And instead, yeah. uh, Microsoft ended up in a you know Vietnam style antitrust case. Uh, and now Apple is kind of going through and picking up all the toys that Microsoft was thinking about and didn't actually play with. Uh, yeah. Well, one comment on that, Stuart, just very quickly, Apple has far better lobbyists than Microsoft ever had. So yes. let's allow that that does actually mean something. In this I think time. that's probably right. I, here's the real problem for them. You can't be in the financial industry without being totally tight with regulators. You have to know what the regulators are likely to do in a year or two and get there first, or you'll end up all with endless pain. I, so, that is not Apple's relationship to government now. At well, least not in, not not in the U.S. <laughs> well, I think that's an important point because who said that they were going to do this in the U.S. first? The U.S. is not the the trailblazing frontier place where people do this kind of advanced financial services work. You do it in Southeast Asia. You do it in South America. You don't do it here. You come to the U.S. last, really. Number one. Number two is there is an amazing brain drain going on right now inside of the federal government. Every almost every single sharp person who's been in the financial regulatory universe over the last few years has been 
been getting job offers. And it's not just add a zero to your paycheck. It's add a zero to your paycheck and only work two days a week. And by the way, here's a babysitter for your kids and, and all the other stuff. I mean, the comp structures right now are kind of nutty. My current thing for people to pay attention to is watch how many people from the Federal Reserve end up working at Apple. That's when uh -huh. you know things are going to start heating up. Okay. All right, so much more to come and a great tip. I'm sure Goldman Sachs will be watching that closely too. <laughs> uh, all right, I, this is an interesting security problem because it's been around for a long time, but hackers are just beginning to figure out how to utilize it. Nate, everybody who has subscribers has to respond to legal subpoenas asking for information about their subscribers. What's interesting is that there's also an exception that says if there's an imminent threat to life or limb in an emergency, you can hand that information over without a subpoena. And hackers have begun pretending to be law enforcement and grabbing information from people because there's no way to check whether you're really, you know, one of the 18,000 uh, law enforcement agencies just in the United States, let alone in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, when you expand that out to the world, it becomes truly impossible to keep up. And, you know, I think, you know, look, this is something that's near and dear to my heart. When I uh, ran this program at Microsoft, this was definitely something that kept us up at night. We spent a lot of time on security and authentication and validation. They do have some processes to try to do that. You know, they often require the legal request to be transmitted either as the story in Bloomberg discussed through portals where the law enforcement officers have login credentials or to come from official government email accounts and things like that. But those methods aren't foolproof either, because as we saw here, the law enforcement agencies can get hacked and then impersonated through those means. And so, you know, I don't think there is a foolproof system. I guess a, a couple of things uh, to put this into perspective. One is the one I just mentioned, which is, you know, the, the real problem here was that the law enforcement agencies weren't um, taking care of their own email systems and, and allowed it to become compromised. When that happens, it's really difficult, if not impossible, for these companies to, to try to head this type of forging off. And the second thing is to remember, you know, this is not unique to the digital world. Similar things happen in the physical world all the time. It's why we have laws that make it a crime to impersonate law enforcement officials. And so it's easy to sort of become breathless over this kind of thing and, you know, blame the companies. And I think, you know, it's important to remember again that this stuff happens in the physical world all the time. And this is just digitization of this ages old problem that, you know, is something that we try to manage, but you're never going to be perfect at. So my memory is that a lot of the, the companies say, we'll give you this emergency information, but you're going to have to come back in 48 hours with a subpoena so that we can validate this. And if you don't, then there will be consequences for the organization who sponsored the request. Yeah. And they, they do other checks too. I mean, you know, sometimes the emergency requests that come in relate to events that have already been reported publicly and have shown up in the media or in open source information that you can validate, even if it's happening halfway around the world. But there are some types of emergencies where, again, these are important things to do. A lot of them involve suicide threats where yep. you know, somebody hears something on a forum online or somebody tells one of their friends that you know they're thinking about committing suicide and they their friend calls it in 
to law enforcement and they need to find that person. So these these requests literally do save lives oftentimes. And, and it's abhorrent that these hackers are, are exploiting that and, and using it for nefarious purposes. But, you know, one thing you'd obviously hate to see is for this kind of cooperation to be shut down because of a few bad apples. And, you know, I think, I guess one other thing I would say is longer term, one of the biggest challenges is, you know, getting law enforcement to modernize things and to to do a better job at working with these technology companies to ensure better validation. There are some things that can be done much better. You know, there are countries, for example, that route all requests or most requests through some kind of central authority that has a trusted relationship. Those methods of transmitting those requests are often more secure than, you know, email addresses that are handed out to literally, you know, millions and millions of law enforcement officers around the world. And so it can be inconvenient at times for them, but, you know, if they can manage some of those inconveniences, there are some ways out there that I think if they work together, they could do a better job of securing this kind of information. So what I found interesting about this story is it was broken by Brian Krebs, who breaks a lot of interesting cybersecurity stories. He just got sued for breaking one, that, and it's worth kind of digging into that. This was a story about a ubiquity breach, and he published a very detailed explanation of how it happened that was really quite damning for ubiquity was provided by an insider. Uh, he made it very clear that this, these were allegations by the insider. But as a you know a, a, a twist on that, the insider it turned out was the guy who had actually carried out the breach and who was feeling the hot breath of law enforcement on his back. Uh, and he decided to up the ante by disclosing it as a catastrophic breach in the hopes that that would uh, somehow distract Ubiquity and law enforcement from his role. Didn't happen, but Ubiquity has sued Krebs for defamation, claiming that Krebs never really admitted, even after the guy who was apparently his source was arrested. And it's a very complicated set of facts because, you know, the, the story when he first released it was, you know, there's no reason he shouldn't have published that. He had what seemed to be a very well-informed insider telling him about something that had happened. The insider was lying about a lot of stuff. It was not clear at what point Krebs should have realized that this guy was lying to him because he may not have known that it was the same guy who was arrested. And I don't think, you know, for all of its drama, the ubiquity complaint never says, oh, and we called up Brian Krebs and told him that this story was being told by somebody who had who was under investigation or had been arrested and asked him for a retraction. So I think it's going to be hard for them to show malice if they never even asked. But it does show, you know, it's dangerous to be in the news reporting business, especially on a shoestring like Brian, or worse, the Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, and the only good thing I can say about Ubiquity is they only asked for $75,000 worth of compensatory damages, which is maybe about right. They asked for three hundred and fifty in punitive damages, which I think is silly. But it will be an interesting case to watch as we try to figure out whether cybersecurity CISOs should be threatening lawsuits more when their breaches are reported. All right, Maury. Um, online harms bill in the UK has been kicking around 
gradually kind of coming into focus. It's still not completely focused because we've got the bill and the bill mostly says, yeah, any of those hard questions, we'll answer them with regulations. But it is an interesting bill and relatively unique in terms of the kinds of obligations it imposes on online services. Yeah, I mean, the this idea of harms-based regulation of online content is something that originated in the UK, I think, around 2018. And there's been distraction from it because of COVID and Brexit and so forth. As you say, it's taken the bill a long time to come out, and it was just introduced, I, I think, this past week. The approach is, you know... There's some obligations regarding online misinformation, which are quite interesting, but there's quite a, a lot of other harms, child pornography, fraudulent content, terrorist content, etc. It, it's not, in, you know, I think the EU has taken a page from that in the Digital Services Act, because that is also kind of a harms-based regulation of online content with duties on service providers. And this seems to be the way the trend is going in Europe. There's a broad consensus that this is the way to go. So I think we will see this bill pass and then, as you say, filled out with regulations. It may take you know, much of this year for that to happen. Yeah, I predict a, a, a complete meltdown as uh, more and more countries say, hey, just do the right thing. Make sure that bad things don't happen on the internet or we'll bankrupt you. We're not going to love the outcome that we get from that, including a lot of the people who are pushing for these bills. But it looks like we're going to have to go into that tunnel before we can get out of it. Yeah, I mean, that once these are enforced, there's going to be a lot of, you know, very difficult obligations. And uh, obligations like Facebook, I mean, like him or hate him, Mark Zuckerberg makes a good point when he says, you know, we got to set the needle somewhere on what we restrict and you end up being over-inclusive or under-inclusive. And as these obligations proliferate, that's going to be a nearly impossible task for the platforms to navigate. It's going to be a mess. Yeah. And in the U.S., we'll get to read everything that the U.K., EU, Russian and Chinese authorities are willing to let us read. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So the other news out of the UK was, this is kind of, as a headline, is sort of gobsmacking. The UK just said, oh, Chinese company wants to buy our biggest and oldest microchip factory? Yeah, sure. Well, this, uh, I haven't dove too deep into the depths of this thing, but the factory was sold for something like 63 million pounds. Uh, a new fab from Intel is billions. So this is not a valuable, it may be the UK's largest fab. I don't know what it means. It builds some communications chips, but I don't think something that's sold for 67 million pounds is a strategically valuable, you know, advanced yeah. facility. And I think that's where the UK government got to. But somebody said, well, you're selling our biggest fab. You've got this new National Security and Investment Act. Why don't you use the authority for this one? This seems like the obvious case for it with the Chinese. And somebody's taken a second look, and they took a second look, and they still haven't blocked it. Yeah. Although they're now saying that they still, I think it's just not a big deal strategically. I'm surprised that the UK, which you know is the home of ARM and has a lot of chip technologists, has so little chip fab capability. Yeah, I mean, we don't have, I mean, ARM has made its money by designing chips, not from building them. And they, it, you know, 
I mean, they're like two steps removed from the fabrication. I think it's one of those industries that the UK has, I think, kind of just never had, but it's one of those industries where we've easily let it slip away to Asia. Yeah. Sultan, CNN had a pretty good interview, the first one I've seen, with the guy who leaked all the Conti uh, yeah. uh, material. I thought that we learned a lot from that. At least I did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first off, it, it just shows that groups like this for, are just as fallible as anyone else, because this guy apparently a few years ago was observing them either personally or on behalf of someone else and managed to get in and for years has been very quietly sitting there in the background, hoovering up information. I, I do love the fight that we have between the FBI and other cyber experts. The FBI is like, no, 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 keep it quiet. Just tell us. And then, you know, <laughs> but the other people are like, no, no, no. Like, this is useful information for us to have. And he's grabbed so much information that, you know, it's exciting for, and I think for a lot of people on the forensic side of this and, and looking at kind of strategically get in front of it, it's fantastic. I, I do love the story, though, that we've now activated an entire generation of hackers. Yes. To, uh, to go- <laughs> To, to go off against the Russians. I think it, sounded, it sounded to me as though it was originally portrayed as one of the ransomware gang leaking this stuff. It looks to me more as though this guy was doing uh, threat surveillance work. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 yeah, it very much looked like he was observing them on behalf of either the Ukrainian government or some company or something like that. Like what he was doing doesn't make sense if he was another hacker. Like the, that it doesn't play like that. This plays much more like uh, like some red team guy sitting in a corporation or working for another government. Well, and this is where Brian Krebs gets a lot of his stories. So for all we know, he'd, he'd been selectively leaking to Krebs for years. Uh, well, or, and maybe Krebs said, hey, start leaking this publicly. I mean, the, the yeah, fact is, yeah. is these stories are now so enmeshed in the social engineering side of this conflict in Ukraine. It's, it'll be very interesting to see what else starts to come out of this, because this guy was certainly not the only guy, and he certainly wasn't acting entirely in a vacuum. Yeah. So here's a story that I find tragic, and I don't know, Nate, you might know this guy. Mark Unkenholtz was indicted. He's an NSA employee who was indicted for mishandling top secret information, you know, probably more than 30 counts, although it looks as though they are all from emails he sent to somebody, to one person. The person he sent it to uh, is somebody who used to have a clearance and moved to another company where he didn't have a clearance, and Unkenholz continued to send him uh, information that was classified. I know Mark Unkenholz, and I knew him at NSA. He was one of the most effective employees and uh, among the smartest employees that I uh, worked with. And it's really just a tragedy to see him caught up in this. Makes me wonder a little whether this is a good idea or not. You know, he was in the office that deals with industry. And Nate, as you know, when you're dealing with industry and trying to get cooperation from them, you're going to a whole bunch of people who have no clearances. They're just, they're just techies. And you're saying, hey, you actually have something that's really valuable and we would like you to help us. 
and we'll explain to you why it's valuable and why, what we need. And already you're talking about top secret stuff and you're talking yeah. about top secret stuff for people who have no clearances. So you have to get used to that and comfortable with that. And you could have indicted everybody in that office at one point or another if you were strict about it. But there was no other way to persuade people that, that what they needed to do was, was give you assistance. And I don't know whether that's what's going on here whether he, or whether he got used to playing too close to the line, but I, I find it hard to believe that he should be facing, you know, 30 felony counts for uh, what he did. Yeah, I did not know him. You know, you raise a good point about, you know, the, those fuzzy lines when you're dealing with industry from inside the government. Usually the government itself is pretty, as a whole, is relatively understanding of that. So it does make you wonder if there's more going on beneath the surface here. But, but it is, you know, it's a shame to see this for a variety of reasons anytime it happens. It's a very economical indictment. It doesn't explain what the, the emails were about in any uh, yeah. detail. It doesn't explain the surrounding information. So there'll be a long process in which Uncle Holtz's defense is put on. But, you know, he's just a guy who lived on a government salary. So it's not like he's going to get a super lawyer. Well, maybe he will, but uh, he won't be paying super lawyer rates for his defense. Yeah. So I hope that works out for him and that either the government was right to do this or that they recognize that they shouldn't have and change their mind. Okay, two things just to catch people up. Lapsus, as expected, there were a couple of UK teenagers who were at the center of what Lapsus is doing, although not all. They certainly weren't by any means all of Lapsus. They've now been arrested and charged. And in keeping, I guess, with uh, UK law, we still don't know their names. We just know that they were 16 and 17 years old. I, we, we get a little bit of inf additional information about the Viasat hack. It, 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 it's been played as a big deal, but I think what we really know more now is we have identified one of the TTPs that were used to carry out the attack, and it's pretty clever, uh, and it goes after the modems, uh, and there's a little additional evidence that it was a Russian attack, which you'd have guessed anyway from the timing and uh, location of the modems that were taken out. But what's surprising is that there really hasn't yet been a firm attribution of that attack, which still looks like the most effective thing the Russians did with their cyber attack capabilities in the early stages of the war with uh, Ukraine. Okay, that is it. Uh, Maury, Nate, Sultan, thanks for uh, joining us. For our audience, uh, I want to remind you that we are looking. It's going to be hard to replace Jacob Nelson, our sound engineer, but we're going to have to do it. So we are looking for somebody who wants to work part-time for the Cyberlaw podcast, helping with substance and sound editing and production. Uh, we, we won't pay a lot, but it will pay something, uh, and it will be a great introduction to cybersecurity policy and podcasting. Uh, so if you're interested or you know somebody who is, send their CV to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, we're going to be looking for another mm, couple of months before we make a final decision. And so this is a good time to get uh, folks that you want to introduce to this field to, into it. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 401 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm -hmm.